The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, for those who don't know, my name is Richard. I'm the church planning resident here. And what that means is that in just a few months, about six now, I will be leading some of you to help plant a church in Conroe, be King's Church. Um, and we're excited about that. And we will have information coming, more coming, let you know what we're doing and how that's going. Um, but we also want to let you know that if you feel in any way called to be a part of that, to come with us or however that might be, I would love to talk to you and I'd love to let you know what that looks like and what that might mean, um, just to what, what it's going to be like to, to share the gospel with uh, the people of Conroe. So that's coming soon. That's right. <laughs> this morning, though, I'm going to be preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for us. Uh, be chapter 3, starting in verse 18. I'm going to focus here on uh, just the, the last part of this chapter 3 uh, through verse 23. And I'm going to go ahead and read this for us. So if you would, please stand in the honor of reading of God's word. Starting in chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the great privilege that it is to sit underneath the truth of your word, to see what you would have us believe and how you would point us to Christ. And I pray that that would be true this morning. I pray that we would see Christ and that he would be our greatest treasure and he would be the, the reason that compels us to live for your glory. I pray that you would help us to heed these words and help us to see what you've said. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I know it's uh, somewhat subjective to pick a favorite actor, but I've always really liked Jimmy Stewart. I know he's, it's an old, old actor, um, but he's, there's something so compelling about his delivery, uh, the way he presents a character. You just always end up believing whatever it is he's doing, whether it's A Wonderful Life, maybe his most famous, or Harvey, which is probably my favorite, but he's just such a great actor. Well, I remember one scene in particular, and I saw this a few years ago, and it just kind of stuck out of my mind as, as interesting what was going on there. It's the movie Shenandoah, and he's a farmer in the middle of a civil war. He's widowed, and so he's raising his family all by himself. And he, he gathers his whole family around the dinner table. They, they regularly pray before they ate. So he gathers around the dinner table and he prays. And this is what he prays. He says, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, we sowed it, and we harvested it. We cooked the harvest. And it wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and every morsel. But I guess we think we just the same, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. Thank you. It's played for laughs, of course, but there's something actually kind of uniquely perceptive about what's going on there. See, even when we don't realize it, and maybe it's not as obvious or as brazen as that example of that kind of prayer, but we still end up congratulating ourselves, and we still end up finding our, our identity and our achievements and what we've accomplished. 
We, we falsely assume that something is our accomplishment when it's truly the work of God. And as a correction, Scripture is constantly speaking to this idea of elevating ourselves. And it speaks of humility as the proper response rather than self-exaltation when we're dealing with who we are in Christ. You see, we are to look more to Christ and we are to look less to ourselves. And so when we pray, genuinely, not like that, but when we pray, we see everything as actually have coming from Christ. It all comes from him, everything we have. And this is what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians in this passage. He's trying to teach them and us, now reading it, in these first few chapters, the truth of self-forgetfulness. And in its place, the exaltation of Christ. He wants to, uh, to forget ourselves and to not be so concerned with who we are and what we've done and to instead be consumed with the glory of Jesus. In fact, Paul's been mentioning this constantly throughout these first cha- three chapters, and he mentions it in the section we read again today in verse 21, and then he even brings it up again next chapter, in chapter 4, telling them not to be puffed up in favor of one over the other. It seems to be Paul's primary corrective for the Corinthians. And so they have a lot of problems in Corinth, but one of their major ones is this prideful and selfish and skewed view of themselves, and it's wrecked their fellowship with one another. It's led to painful divisions, and it's led to factions within the body of Christ. And we see this back in chapter 1, and Paul's already appealed to them to, to be of one mind in Jesus Christ. He says that in the name of Jesus Christ, I want you all to agree, to be unified in one mind and in one judgment. Because their pride and their inflated view of themselves, their inflated view of their own ego, which is not unique to the Corinthians, we suffer from this as well, it's led to quarreling among them. So that some are saying that I'm of Paul. You know, maybe they prefer his, his clumsy presentations of the gospel. Or some are saying that I'm of Apollos and his, his fancy Greek, well-educated edu- education around, around rhetoric and fancy speeches. He's an eloquent man, Acts tells us. Or some wanted Cephas, who's Peter, and his, maybe his close connection with Jesus. And the point of Paul's response to them and these divisions that have found themselves in the body is that we shouldn't be developing this this factionalism where we're seeing one person as more important than the other because we like the way they teach better or we like their emphasis better or we like their personality better. Paul says that's the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of God. See, they were filling themselves up with the wisdom of the world, which says promote yourself, promote your own ideology, promote your way of thinking and your way of doing things above everything else and above everyone else. It's a very me-centered, self-fulfillment ideology. So they have moved from finding their identity in Christ to something else, themselves. And this brings us to what we see in this passage this morning. It really highlights what Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying about our sinful pride and the opposite of that, which is gospel humility. And so in order to cultivate this this gospel humility that that destroys pride, we ask a question. We ask, how do we look less to ourselves and how do we look more to Christ? I think it starts with understanding who we are in Christ and what is ours in Christ. And so I see two reminders in this passage to that end to help us answer this question. Two two pride-busting, Jesus-exalting reminders that help us focus on the glory of Jesus instead of ourselves. The first, we see this in verses 18 through 20. 
The first is that we are fools. I don't know about you, but nothing kills my pride quicker than being called a fool. But that's not the end of the point. There's more to that. If you look at verse 18, he says, let no one deceive himself. And really, these are Paul's most confrontational words in the letter yet. He is warning them of the danger of self-delusion. Don't deceive yourself, he says. Well, about what? Look at the rest of verse 18. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And he gives the reason for that following in verse 19. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. And what does this mean? What is the wisdom of the world that is folly? And what does it mean to be a fool? Let's look at each of those. The wisdom of the world. See, the fact that Paul reminds them of this implies that they already thought they were quite wise. And now it's important to point out that this this wise in this age or wisdom of the age, wisdom of the world, this isn't book smarts. This isn't street smarts. This isn't intellectual capacity. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what this means. There is value in excelling and being knowledgeable. And it's not limited to believers, despite sometimes what we think. See, you don't have to be a Christian to use the intelligence God gave you. That's not what Paul's dealing with here. The wisdom Paul is talking about is much more foundational than that. It's actually our basic worldview how we view the world in front of us, how we view our place in the world in front of us. So it's questions that are basic to life and as big as what is my purpose? Why am I here? Or how do I treat others and how am I supposed to view myself? These questions, that's what Paul's getting at. It's about how we live our lives and for whom we live our lives. And so in verse 18, this, the age, the wisdom of the age refers to the worldview of the war, world in verse 19 and it's opposed to the worldview of God. It's the difference in how we see life in the world and how God views life in the world. And this wisdom that Paul is talking about that that has already taken the Corinthians so captive is a worldly worldview that elevates your own self and your own value far greater than anybody else. It says, my greatest purpose in life is me. It's self-fulfillment at all costs. And this inflated self-esteem is what bothered the Corinthians. It was their trouble, their problem. It's what Paul's trying to correct. See, they were measuring themselves against each other. They were latching on to their party's belief that that their favorite leader and his followers were far superior to anyone else and his followers. And it's not an isolated incident. I mean, we we too struggle with the wisdom of the age. It's not just the, the troublesome Corinthian church that dealt with this. This is a problem that we face daily as well. See, the, the world tells us to find our value from within. The world tells us to be the better you. The world tells us to look within yourself to find purpose, to pursue what always fulfills yourself, to succeed at all costs because power and prestige are the greatest things that you can achieve. That wisdom tells us that we are our own greatest treasure. But that's not the way of Christ. That's not what Christ has done for us. That's why God, in, in verse 19, views it as folly. And that's why also in verse 19, he says he catches the wife in their craftiness. He thinks it's crafty. That's a quote from Job. And he knows that it's futile because it doesn't lead to life. There's no hope in that view. See, we cannot earn our standing before God and we cannot succeed our way to salvation no matter how happy we try to make ourselves. The path of selfish ambition and pride that elevates our own status will not bring forgiveness and it will not bring removal of sins and so it will not bring everlasting joy. It doesn't bring glory to God. 
That's why the answer for worldly wisdom infiltrating our thinking isn't just to work really hard to get rid of it. It's as Paul says here, to become a fool to become wise. It's not even something within yourself. When you, when you recognize the pride in your own life, it's not even something from within that gets rid of it. You must empty yourself and become a fool for this wisdom. And so this worldly wisdom is a focus on ourselves rather than the holy life-giving God of the universe. And the answer to that, as you would expect, is not to find, again, change from within. That's the problem to start with. But it's to look to this crucified Galilean who is king of the cosmos. We must become a fool. I mean, what does that mean? What does it mean to become a fool? This is one of my, really, it's one of my favorite, just, just punchy expressions of Paul. You know, he, when he says he'd become a fool, he's fully aware of what it means. He understands the implications of that term. It meant to them pretty much the same thing it means to us. You know, we get that. We understand. There's not a lot of difficulty in the translation there. He knows all the negative implications, and that is precisely why he chooses to use it to describe who we must be. Paul wants to make a point that the way of salvation and the way to bring glory to God is not of human devising. See, our best efforts and the best that we can come up with to make sense of the world is ultimately folly. And this is precisely why God has chosen to reveal himself to us in Scripture. He hasn't left us to figure this out all on our own because we're not meant to. But the message of Scripture and the, the central turning point of all reality is Christ and his death, and it looks foolish to the world. But in reality, that view is just self-deception. For Christ, Paul tells us in chapter 1, is the very wisdom of God. But to the world, it's foolish. The wisdom of the age says it's foolish. When Paul tells us that we must become fools and we must abandon this idea that we are sufficient within ourselves and make right decisions, he's saying that you must look outside of yourself. You must look to someone else. You must look back to Christ. In chapter 1, he, he also this, makes this remarkable statement. He says, and I'll read this to you, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That means that this exhortation to become fools is the way forward out of pride by looking back to the greatest example of humility that ever walked the face of the earth. See, foolishness here is focusing on Jesus and his cross and his selflessness and his sacrifice. That's what it means to become a fool. We become fools by submitting ourselves to what the world views as the greatest foolish act ever, the scandalous death of Jesus. And the reason we look at this and we see this is because it alone, we believe, it alone has the power to save. See, we believe in a sinless Messiah who died on the cross bearing the full weight of our sin in our place, who raised from the dead three days later and now reigns at the right hand of God as king for an eternity. That's what we believe. And the world sees it as despicable and foolish. You see, a crucifixion is not something you would normally boast in. You've probably heard this example, but it's, it's, it would be kind of like boasting in images of, of lethal injection or some other form of capital punishment. It looks, it looks foolish. We would look like fools walking around like that. But that's because the wisdom of the world, as Paul refers to this in chapter 2, the natural people who do not understand the things of God, they have not seen the real earth-shattering implications of what Jesus did. 
And that's because it's the Holy Spirit alone who gives us eyes to see that true significance. See, we are to embrace the message of the cross and all its wisdom, which says, it's not up to you, it's up to me, so put your faith in me. Wisdom that says foolishness is wise, that says weakness is power, and that the last will be first, and that to gain your life, you must lose it. And so with Paul, we can gladly say that we are fools for Christ's sake. We would rather give up all possible accolades this side of eternity for the sake of Jesus. We would gladly suffer persecution for the foolishness of God becoming man. It's because we recognize our utter hopelessness without it. So when Paul says to become a fool, what he means is to believe in the power of the cross to save sinners like you and me. It is to be in awe of Christ's humility to the point of his death for us. This is what Paul uh, tells the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says this to them. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's this truth that rips from us anything that we might have within ourselves to boast, which is, again, what Paul's getting at here. See, we aren't able left to our own devices to bring glory to God, and so we must look to the cross and let the Spirit then work through us, which is what brings glory to God. See, recognizing our need for Christ is what drives us to Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. Remember, his primary corrective for them is their prideful boasting and self-exaltation that's led to them dividing amongst themselves. And so his call for them is to reject the wisdom of the age and embrace Christ. That's what he's doing here. And that brings us to the main command where you see this in verse 21, the very first part of it. So let no one boast in men. It's the center of this passage, possibly the main exhortation that's going on in these first three chapters. It's the result of what Paul has just explained to us. The wisdom of the world is folly and therefore you must run to Christ. He says, so, so don't boast in men. This so, the reason he says this is he's showing us now that what he says is the result of what he has just said. Because this is true, so this ought to be true. Because any wisdom you have comes from Christ, not yourself, stop boasting in men. That's what he's saying. And this men, it's, just, it's the word for all humanity. He's talking about all humanity. So Paul's then saying that in light of our, the folly of our worldly self-sufficient wisdom and the necessity for us to depend entirely on someone else, it's Christ, we stop boasting in ourselves and in our works because we have nothing apart from Christ and his cross. It is our power for our salvation. It is our source of wisdom. It is our motivation for living. And so with Paul, we can say this. He says this to the Galatians. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so if we want to see pride killed in our lives, we look less to ourselves and we keep our eyes fixed continually on the glory of Jesus. I think C.S. Lewis had, 
had this idea right when he said, true humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking about ourselves less. And we see, we are those in a desperate need of Jesus, and through faith in his finished work on the cross, we have received him in abundance. And that, that brings us to the next thing we see here in verse 21. So after he has said, so let no one boast in men, he follows it up with, for all things are yours. He starts this with the word for, and so he's saying, essentially, this is the same thing. I'm just reversing the order. I've given you one reason not to boast in humanity, and so here's another reason. You've had one theological reminder for why looking to Christ rather than yourself is the way of the Christian. Now, here's a second reason, a promise, and it's a promise of our fullness in Christ. And so the first point is that we are fools, and the second point is that we are full. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. This is one of those statements that I think ranks up there as almost too vast to grasp its full implications. All things belong to us. I've read this passage numerous times, numerous. I don't know how many I have just kind of sat here and really, really felt the full weight of the implications of what Paul is saying. All things are yours. Not some things, all things. Now, Paul's not doing the same thing that he's just corrected them for. He's not feeding our pride with a statement like this. See, when we say all things are ours, we don't mean selfishly. We don't mean because we deserve it or we've earned it. And we don't mean to do whatever we want with. No, all things are ours because all things are Christ's and we belong to him. And this, I think what Paul's getting at here when he says all things are yours, this is what he's saying in Romans 8, 28, when he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The wonderful promise this, this further highlights is our dependence on Christ for everything. It fixes our gaze on his immeasurable worth. And you'll notice that this phrase, all things are yours, it, it's, there, it appears twice there. At the end of verse 21, at the end of verse 22. What Paul's doing is essentially providing us with some bookends for exactly what he means by saying all things are yours. One commentator says this. He says, self-glory and self-sufficiency can cheat and deceive a believer out of the richer, wider resources that God has provided in his generosity. It's the generosity of Christ. And that's what Paul's saying is ours here. The point is that the abundance of treasure that we have as a divine blessing is reason enough to leave off boasting in men or boasting in ourselves. What a waste of time compared to boasting in the gracious gifts given to us by the God of creation. And I want to argue that though this is how Paul is using this here, it's not just a truth that kills pride in our life. The truths of, these, of verses 21 and 22 are so foundational that it affects how we think about all things and all circumstances that we face in life. When he says all things are yours, he means for your benefit, for your edification, for your encouragement, for your comfort, for your sanctification, for your joy. That's what this is for. It's the wonderful truth of our identity in Christ, and it provides all we ever need and all we could ever ask for, and it's free through faith in his work. 
See, I, Paul, I think Paul wanted us to, to be encouraged here, to give us such a high view of the work of God in Christ that he alone would be our greatest desire. And so we wouldn't feel the need to, to latch on to things and find our identity in them because we are so captivated with who Christ is. I think it does that. And I want us to see what the Spirit is saying through Paul here. You see, in verse 22, he says a few different things that kind of help define what he means by all things are yours. The first thing he does is very specifically address, again, the unique problems that the Corinthians were dealing with. And then he kind of expands that to include almost anything you could possibly imagine that would draw your, away, your gaze away from Jesus. And so the first thing he does is he tells them that these leaders that you've been dividing over, they're yours. The very first part of verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they all belong to you. And what does that mean? And I think this is not just a corrective for the Corinthians, but this still remains very practical for us. See, Paul is bringing to mind the very things that he has already corrected them for and what is the most outward way that their failure to understand who they are in Christ has manifested itself. Saying your leaders are yours. They aren't here to lord over you their authority. They're here to serve you in the name of Christ. But too often, like the Corinthians, we develop wrong views about our leadership. And I know uh, Jeff mentioned a bit of this a couple of weeks ago because Paul keeps coming back to these themes. Um, but we rightly respect and we rightly love those who teach us the word every week. We submit to them as our leaders who are going to give an account for our souls. We trust them to handle the word of God, knowing that it is them through which the Holy Spirit speaks. But in the course of all of that, we sometimes begin to find our identity, not in the message they preach, but in the way they preach it and how they preach it and their, their specific formulation of how they're preaching it. Their, their personality becomes where we find our identity. And that's the error of the Corinthians where they're factioning off into these groups. And you know this happens when, when it's not someone's common union in Christ that leads you to respect them, but it's which podcast they listen to or which system of doctrine that they, pro they proclaim or how they specifically explain it to you. And, and this is true even in evangelical circles. I mean, some say I'm a Chandler guy or a Sproul guy or a MacArthur guy. Whether we say it out loud or whether we think it, we're dividing. And I don't mean this one particular guy explains things in a way that best helps me understand. I don't mean that. That's valid. But I'm saying you're unwilling to heed the counsel of those who, though different in some ways, are still indwelled by the Spirit of God. It's the same for discussions around theology. I'm of Calvin or I'm of anyone but Calvin. We become unwilling to listen and grow by those who, who, though different in some ways, are indwelt by the Spirit. And this, of course, does not mean that you must listen to anyone and everyone who calls himself a pastor. Paul's clear that it's those who are faithfully proclaiming the gospel and those who are committed to sound doctrine. But in a very real way, all gospel preachers are ours as the church, ours as the body of Christ. They serve the church. And that means the same for the elders here at Redeemer. The elders of Redeemer are here to serve the church. They're here to serve you. That doesn't mean that they abdicate their responsibility to lead, but that they lead in order to serve and this is the very example of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the model that church leaders follow. They are to serve the body of Christ and in that sense belong to the body of Christ. 
Paul has made this point a few times. He made it back in verse 5 saying, what's Apollos and what is Paul but servants through whom you believed? And in chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. So think about the point that Paul is making. He's saying to the Corinthians, and he's saying, all things are yours. And that includes these leaders that you've been dividing over. And why would you start boasting in particular men when they all belong to the church for your edification? Your prideful boasting and his indication, he says, that you're not believing the reality of the gospel in your life. You see, we are to see them as gifts and workers of God here to teach gospel truths. And so let's not miss this overwhelmingly massive security that is ours in Christ. And really, it has far-reaching implications for all of life. You see, after Paul kind of addresses this, this specific problem that's been so prevalent with the Corinthians, he kind of goes on to expand the idea to show us just what the implications of this, this means, that all things are yours. It's almost like Paul kind of starts, you know, he's like, well, you're, you're fighting over these guys, and they're yours, and then he starts, and he just can't stop. He's like, and you know what? Everything else is yours, too. It's like a, like a Holy Spirit-inspired riffing on the treasures of belonging to Christ. All is yours, every bit of it. And so look at the rest of verse 22. I want to point out a couple things here. He says, after telling them that Paul and Apollos or Cephas are theirs, he says, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all yours. And what an absolutely mind-blowing promise this is. And this gives us together an eternal picture and just illuminates for us the grand inheritance that we have as Christians. And Paul is using almost every descriptor that he can muster to show how every corner of our existence for the Christian is a part of our inheritance. I think this is practical for us because we are too often prone to forget these truths and to forget what it means to be full in Christ because these things, these things are struggles for us in daily life. D.A. Carson calls these the, the fundamental tyrannies of the human life. He means that these are the things that threaten to enslave us, the world and life and death, present, future. They enslave us and they put us in bondage. And so they're there and they tempt us to have our gaze drawn away from Jesus. It's because we too often lose sight of who we are in Christ. And this is why we must continually be preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's why for Paul, the answer to the Corinthians problem was more gospel. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember what that means for you. He says, the world is yours. The world is so easy to, to tie us down because it gets so busy that we start focusing so much on the way things are now, and we stop looking at the promise of the new heavens and the new earth and our place in them. We forget that the world is ours and that in Christ we will inherit it. Matthew 5, 5. The same with life. Life becomes our ultimate idol, and when it does, death becomes our greatest fear. We lose sight of the reality that life, according to Scripture, is but a vapor. It's why we seek approval from others, and it's why we believe this lie that life is what you make it on this side of eternity. We stop storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, and we start making things on this earth our greatest desire. And so we make decisions as though death is final. When in reality, death has been conquered in Christ. And that's a promise for us as Christians. I remember a couple months ago, I read this, this tweet by Pipe, John Piper, 
who says things more profoundly in 140 characters than I will in 40 minutes. But he says, make some choices today that don't make sense unless you will be raised from the dead. And they're so true. He's right. We ought to see death as but a mere gateway because death is but a mere gateway for us. We don't have to fear death because we are a resurrection people. And that means, he talks about our present and our future here too. That means our present is ours because we have already tasted the glory of justification. Paul tells us in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's ours now. That's our promise this moment. The future as well. I mean, as we await the glorious return of Jesus, we know that with confidence that we have a place in eternity with him. I want to read this to you. Paul says this again in Romans chapter 8. Wonderful passage. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we rejoice as we sang this morning, that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In Christ, death has lost its sting. And so to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we have the immeasurable joy of knowing Jesus, which means this very moment, that though our sins are like scarlet, that they will be as white as snow, that they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 1. What glorious grace is found in the salvation which is made possible in the folly of the cross. We have the hope of the resurrection of which Christ has gone before us, guaranteeing that through faith we will all follow. You see, when we pass through death, and we will, but we will pass through as its master, not its slave. The worst that death can do to the believer is deliver us to Jesus. I, think, I love the way Spurgeon says this. He says, death indeed is not a dreary thing to those who believe in Jesus. Those who know how to commune with death from day to day will never be afraid of it. It is the gate to endless joy. And how do we dread to enter there? The grave is but where our bodies lay until our Lord shall say, awake, and we will rise from our grave clothed in immortality and glory to dwell with him forever. That's why the present and the future are ours. We belong to Christ already through salvation, and we will reign with him for an eternity. And all of this is yours. Why boast in anything here that we can do? We have forgotten sometimes the immeasurable value that is already ours freely in Christ. Which is why Paul, when he ends this section in verse 23, says, and you are Christ's. It's a wonderful reality that we have been freely giving such blessings in Jesus. He says, you are Christ. And Paul says this to counter this, again, this factionalism that was true in their life, saying you don't belong to your favorite pastors, you belong to Jesus, and that's far greater. But he says it in a broad sense as well. See, you are Christ's. When he says this, this is our reminder that we have everything we need when we are tempted to believe that there is some need left unmet. What a treasure Christ is and how full we are in him. 
And this passage invites us to experience the weight of the glory that's found in Jesus alone. And that is precisely the foundation for all of this. I mean, these wonderful realities are ours. But they are only ours because we belong to Jesus. Because it is Christ who will rule the world with authority. It is Christ who has made eternal life possible through his substitutionary death. It is Christ who conquered death on the cross and in his resurrection. And it is Christ who reigns now as king over every square inch of the universe. And it is Christ who sustains us until he returns, ushering in the kingdom of God. And it's these realities, these truths that are ours and that we must hold dear. Sometimes, though, we miss them. Sometimes we, we're tempted to forget these things. We're tempted. That's why it's so, so important that we're constantly meditating on the truths of the gospel because we forget. It's like, I'll, I'll quote C.S. Lewis again. Uh, who better to quote? He said this. He said, we are too often like children who don't want to stop playing in the mud because they can't imagine what is meant by a holiday at sea. We're too easily pleased. And let's not be. Let's not be so pleased with the treasure that we can acquire on earth that we miss the invaluable blessings that are ours in Christ for an eternity. The gospel of Jesus has promised all of this, and we must only freely receive it through faith in his finished work. Repent and believe. And I just want to urge you, anyone who does not belong to Christ, to consider the reality of life apart from his grace. Consider the futility of living without him and embrace the gospel and immediately receive the storehouse of treasures that is in Christ. Paul is trying to show us with unmistakable clarity the wonder of salvation in Jesus. That's why he ends this section by saying, not only you're Christ, but Christ is God's. He doesn't mean that Christ is any less God, but that Christ, while on this earth, perfectly fulfilled the Father's perfect will by satisfying the wrath against unbelievers with his blood-soaked work of redemption. See, the sovereign of the universe then holds us securely through Christ. And he has blessed us with immeasurable riches beyond our imagination. And so I just want to leave you with this, last few thoughts here. It's practical. This is really practical stuff. It's not simply theological truths detached from reality. It's not something, well, we know, we know this is a truth in Christ, we know. But this actually moves us and affects the way we live our lives every single day. And Paul knows that theology is practical. Because you see, knowing who we are in Christ and what is ours in Christ, knowing our treasure in Christ, produces a desire to live for His glory. It produces a desire to, to be about self-forgetfulness, to not be so concerned with myself and to be overwhelmed with the cause of Christ. It conquers fears and it redirects our gaze. It gives us a right view of who we are. And so let's live our lives knowing that we humble ourselves because of who Jesus is and because he's what, he, what he has done for us, that we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross and we glory in God who gives grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray. If you're serving communion, you can go ahead and make your way to the front. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for how wonderful you are to us, how despite Despite what we don't deserve, you have given us an abundance. That you have called us to see who we are in Christ.
that we are dependent, that we are fools for your glory and for your sake, and that we would gladly give it all up for the sake of your name, and that you have called us to see what is ours in Jesus, that we do truly have a great inheritance that is both future and now. It's present. And so I pray that you would help us to daily reflect on the truths of who we are because of your great work and that it would change the way we live for your glory and for the salvation of sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' name.